Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In this episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, it is my honor and privilege to sit down with Dr. Chris McGlory. He's an assistant professor at Queen's University, Canada, having completed postdoctoral fellowships at McMaster University in Canada under the supervision of Dr. Stu Phillips. Chris specializes in the use of stable isotope tracers to track skeletal muscle protein turnover during periods of fasting, feeding, training, and immobilization. In this episode, we take his expertise and we do a very deep dive into his current research, which is focused on exploring how omega-3 fatty acid and essential amino acid intake protect against muscle disuse atrophy. Chris has published over 60 scientific papers, and he has delivered numerous invited national and international presentations at many prestigious scientific meetings. This conversation was absolutely wonderful. We discussed how much omega-3 fatty acids someone should use, the mechanism of action, how it can actually protect your skeletal muscle from disuse, and what is its role in overall skeletal muscle health, and so much more. Chris is a wealth of knowledge, and again, this is a very important nutrient, omega-3 fatty acids. It's something that we can measure in your blood, and it's something you can get in the diet or take through supplementation. It's easy, and the literature is just booming. If you like this episode, please take a moment to like, subscribe, share it. We offer this education free of cost so that we can get the message out there from the people in the trenches. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. I never go anywhere without my Element. It really helps in a number of ways. Element is a electrolyte solution. It has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium in multiple different flavors. I mix it with sparkling water. Be careful because it can overflow if you are not paying attention. Here's why I love Element. I'm traveling a ton. I'm also sweating a lot. I know that that's probably too much information, but I'm doing these things that are constantly causing dehydration and I feel it, whether I get muscle cramps or headaches. I use Element because it really, really helps me personally. I recommend it to my patients. I strongly suggest that you give it a try. You can go over to drinklmnt.com slash Dr. Lion. And when you use my code, you will get a eight flavor sample pack to try. So that way you can decide what you like and what you don't, but I guarantee you are going to love them all. And Element offers a no questions asked refund, so it's totally risk-free. Thank you to Timeline for sponsoring this episode of the show. With all of this discussion about mitochondrial health and how it becomes damaged as we age and how important it is for energy generation, it's critical and imperative to take care of the health of our mitochondria. Today, you heard all about omega-3 fatty acid. I'm here to tell you that MitoPure makes an incredible urolithin A. It is the purest. 
and first only clinically tested form of the potent postbiotic urolithin A, which has been shown in multiple trials to support mitochondrial health and even improve endurance and strength in individuals. Again, if you care about a muscle-centric lifestyle, then you definitely, definitely want to be on board with MitoPure. Head on over to TimelineNutrition.com slash Dr. Lion, and you will get 10% off your order. That's TimelineNutrition.com slash Dr. Lion. Dr. Chris McGlory, you are an assistant professor at Queen's University, and you completed a postdoctoral fellowship at McMaster University under the supervision of the one and only Dr. Stu Phillips. I'm really excited to have you on the show today because your work in omega-3 fatty acids and skeletal muscle health and essential amino acid intake to protect to protect against muscle disuse atrophy is extraordinary. You really are leading and paving the way. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. And thanks for the nice introduction. I think I'm taking a lot of credit there for, for some, for other people's work as well, but, uh, very much a team effort in, in the human trial. So yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting a little bit about some of the work that we've done and some of the work that we're, we're looking to do now. So excited. So let's dive into it. Can you give us a little bit of background, how you arrived at your current research? Yeah, sure. So I um, did a, I'm from the UK. I'm based in Canada, but I, I did my undergraduate um, and master's degrees at Liverpool John Moores University, which is which is probably the best sports science institute in the world, at least in my opinion. And I did it with uh, Graham Close and, and James Morton. And um, both Graham and James are very interested in, in carbohydrate metabolism and, and sports performance. And, you know, I did a little bit of work there. Uh, and then I was really fascinated by protein metabolism and, and learning how muscle proteins turn over. So James recommended I work with um, uh, somebody in that field, such as, you know, Stuart or, um, you know, Luke Van Loon in, in Holland. But I was very lucky to land a PhD studentship with Kevin Tipton at the University of Stirling. And, and my intention really was to go up there and learn how to use stable isotope traces to measure muscle protein turnover after exercise. But when I got up there, Kevin and, and my other supervisor, Stuart Galloway, had landed a grant to look at how omega-3 fatty acids had, um, would interact with protein metabolism um, in the context of feeding omega-3 fatty acids and seeing how it affected muscle uh, yeah, muscle protein metabolism. And it kind of piqued my interest. So we did a series of studies um, in Sterling. Um, and then I, at the same time, we were collaborating with uh, Dr. Stuart Phillips's lab at Master because Stuart had the mass specs that um, allowed us to measure the isotope enrichment in our samples. So I went to Canada for a couple of weeks and worked there with um, uh, the the crew in, in Mac. And then when I got back to Sterling, Stuart had, uh, kindly offered me the opportunity to go and learn from him a little bit more of the clinical work in, in, in the form of a postdoc. So I went to McMaster and I spent, um, I'd say, five of the best years of my career with, with Dr. Phillips, learning lots about the clinical work and applying stable isotopes. And Stu was also a very excellent mentor and allowed me to work with other people such as Graham Holloway and learn from them in, in the surrounding area. And then a job came up at Queen's University in Canada just before the pandemic. Um, I applied and I got the job and then the rest is history, really, at least with the pandemic. And it's only now that we've really started to get some of the trials that I'm sure we'll talk about today open, open going. 
Yeah, I'm really excited. And, you know, my audience is fascinated in the idea of muscle-centric medicine from our perspective, and I can speak collectively for my audience. We are very focused on the health of skeletal muscle as it relates to aging, longevity, metabolism, glucose homeostasis, and protecting skeletal muscle is really at the forefront of all of our thoughts, especially uh, as aging and with the continuation of the narrative of really just focused on obesity, but bringing it back to skeletal muscle health, which again, I think that you've done some tremendous work. Can you talk, number one, I would like for the audience to understand a little bit, nothing in great detail about the stable isotope tracer so they can get a sense of uh, putting into context some of the work. Uh, Just very briefly, yeah, briefly. So, as long story short, is that when you 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 want to look at how your muscle grows, um, you need to be able to measure it, and you can either use imaging techniques, you know, such as an MRI, um, but that takes typically weeks, sometimes months, to see the change in muscle growth and response or muscle loss in response to an intervention. By using a stable isotope, essentially a stable isotope, it, it labels amino acids. It makes them a little bit heavier chemically, which allows us that when we take muscle biopsies and we take blood samples we can look at the fate of the ingested amino acid. So for example, if you have an amino acid or a particular food source that is more anabolic than another, when we take muscle biopsies, we will see what we call a greater level of enrichment, which means more of that isotope in the muscle. And we use mass spectrometry to assess that, which is an extremely precise and sensitive instrument. So we can actually measure muscle growth using stable isotopes over the period of hours and days instead of weeks and months with the imaging techniques. That's so fascinating. And I think it's important to point out that typically in practice and when they translate human trials, that um, the imaging can miss a lot versus the stable isotope is, again, like you said, very precise. You will get even granular, granular detail. Talk to me about what you uncovered about omega-3 fatty acids. Number one, what are omega-3 fatty acids? What are some of the doses that you looked at? What are some of the the mechanisms of action? Because again, if we ask a question and we say, well, omega-3 fatty acids may help with uh, muscle protein synthesis as opposed to uh, its effect on muscle breakdown, what are some of the mechanisms of action? And and just kind of a broad overview on the omega-3 fatty acids and how that relates to muscle health. Sure. Uh, and if I start rambling, feel free to interject <laughs> me because it's something we I, I, I don't find quite interesting. Sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, it's helpful. Yeah. So omega-3 fatty acids are a class of an essential fatty acid, which basically means we need to acquire them in the diet. And essentially the omega-3s refer to the position of the first double carbon bond. So say a saturated fatty acid and most fatty acids, they're essentially hydrocarbon chains. Um, and the poly or the unsaturated fatty acid basically means that there's a double carbon bond somewhere in that chain. And these double carbon bonds create a kink in the fatty acids. So instead of having a, a flat saturated chain, the position of that double carbon bond will create like a bit of a kink in the fatty acid chain. And an omega-3 basically refers to the fact that, that that kink or that double bond is on the third carbon away from the omega end of the fatty acid chain. Now, a polyunsaturated fatty acid means that there's multiple kinks or multiple double carbon bonds. So, you know, this is where we see the differences between the actions, say, of saturated fatty acids and polyunsaturated fatty acids um, in the body. So then some people would say, well, what's the difference between an N3 and an N6? Well, 
if we go by the extension of that it's the position on the third carbon, the N6 means that the double carbon bond is on the sixth carbon. Um, and this kind of has a fundamental difference in the body in terms of we believe or we know that the omega-3 serve as precursors or building blocks for the production of anti-inflammatory signaling molecules, whereas the omega-6s serve as the building blocks for some pro-inflammatory signaling molecules. And it's just quite interesting to me that simply moving the position of that first double carbon bond can have such a, a profound effect on metabolism and, and at least inflammatory processes in the muscle. In, in terms of the mechanism of action, aside from inflammation, because you know that is generally where people focus when we talk about omega-3s. We think of it um, in terms of having the anti-inflammatory actions, which it does, but we believe that some of the effects in muscle um, are independent from that anti-inflammatory action, and they could be related more to the structure of the omega-3s because those omega-3 fatty acids are actually incorporated into our membranes of our cells, and those membranes actually protect the inside of the cell. And when you incorporate those omega-3s into that phospholipid membrane, think of it like a, a wall protecting the castle. When you kind of incorporate more of those omega-3s, it alters the processes on the membrane, and we believe it alters the processes on the membrane in a favorable way towards skeletal muscle. That's so fascinating. And you had mentioned uh, N3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, and that's really what we talk yeah. about is a, a PUFA, omega-3 fatty acids. And then you mentioned omega-6 fatty acids. And there's a lot of conversation about that ratio in the current Western diet. In terms of, and I know that in your uh, studies, you have um, uh, multiple, multiple great studies. And, and the one that I'm looking at here is temporal changes in human skeletal muscle and blood lipid composition with fish oil supplementation. Because again, from a bench to bedside perspective, what we care about is how does this move the needle for the listener and the patients? You gave people five grams of fish oil per day for four weeks. Yeah. Do you think that an individual requires, could someone get that in a diet? And also, could they get that in the appropriate ratio of EPA and DHA? I'd love for you to discuss how you came up with five grams of fish oil, how you decided on the EPA, DHA, and then one last question, and I can remind you of any of these questions. <laughs> what is the minimum to prevent deficiency? Because I, I don't think that per se, we think of omega-3 fatty acids as a minimum to prevent deficiencies. But I'm curious as if you've thought about that. Okay, so I'll start with the last question first. So you're correct. The main omega-3 fatty acids are EPA and DHA. Um, and the typical recommendation is to consume um, two oily pieces of fish a week. Um, and that would get you around a gram a week, I believe. And that's going to be on top of what your normal diet is. Um, and this is for people without cardiovascular disease risk. And then it changes with all people with, with um, heart disease starting off at around one gram per day. And that's when people look at supplements. Um, on that note, what I'll say is that people sometimes will conflate fish oil with omega-3 supplements. So what I'll say is that like sometimes you'll see the brand, or not the brand, you'll see it labeled as fish oil, but you look at the back and of per gram, you might only have 100 milligrams, which is a tenth of EPA and DHA, and the rest of it is filler with different fatty acids, monounsaturated fatty acids. Um, so really, I think it's, it's careful to, to, for us to kind of talk in the context of EPA and DHA, not necessarily fish oil, but when we communicate with the general public, we say fish oil. But that's my um, disclaimer there. I think what we try to do is 
is we're using omega-3s as a means to kind of understand the regulation of, of metabolism. So the doses that we use in our studies are not ones that I would suggest the general public should be moving forward with just yet. They're very That's high very doses, around five grams. That's interesting. Wait, but yeah. before you go back, what should someone look at? For example, let's say you're going to Whole Foods. I don't know if you have Whole Foods yeah. out there, but let's say you're going to one of your health food stores. No fish oil is getting past you, right? So you're picking up the bottle. What exactly are you looking for? What dosing are you looking so, for? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So on the back of each fish oil, a commercially available fish oil will have around 30% of EPA plus DHA. So that's generally what is normally on the shelf. You can get higher quality and higher grade. So what I typically look for is the EPA and DHA content. So what you will often see is them expressed in something called milligrams on the back of, say, it's the bottle. And if you're looking to get 500 milligrams per day, what you can do is you can look at the back and it'll either say per serving or per one soft gel or one gram of soft gel, how much you get. And for myself, I would typically, if anything starts to get below 30% is when I become concerned. And you'll notice that a lot of the cheaper products typically have EPA and DHA content of that fish oil product that is, is lower than 30%. So, so typically it's just that we go for things that are like around 30% or higher for the fish oil product of EPA plus DHA. So there's no number of EPA aside from percentage that you're looking for in terms of 800 milligrams. Well, I would I would typically look for a, co a combination of EPA plus DHA that comes to 500 milligrams. Um, and that would help, you know, if you are looking to get 500 milligrams per day, which is around what um, the recommendations are for people without cardiovascular disease, then that's kind of what I would look for to do. Do you think that that is enough? Well, I'm going to do the scientist response here and say <laughs> it depends. And it's it's all context specific. So, you know, there's recommendations there for healthy people. There's recommendations for people with cardiovascular disease. Um, I don't think, in my opinion right now, we have enough scientific evidence available to make prescription recommendations to improve skeletal muscle health. Um, I'd say it's going to be a few years before we get there. But I think the first thing is, you know, do no harm. And I'm not an RD or a physician, so a registered dietitian or physician, so I wouldn't be prescribing anybody anything. But I'd say that there's no real harm in, in going up to around two grams per day of EPA plus DHA, at least from what I've seen in the literature. Um, and there appears to be quite significant benefit if you look at um, Bill Harris's work with the Omega-3 index that the second you get a little bit higher into those ranges, um, there seems to be beneficial impacts across the board for health. And I love that you brought up the omega-3 index because that is something you guys listening can have your provider do. An omega-3 index is something that can be, um, you can get that through blood work. Is there a percentage that you like to see in the omega-3 index of um, omega-3 fatty acids? Yeah. So I'm careful with this. I mean, in terms of cardiovascular disease risk off the top of my head, I believe it's around 8% is what people are looking towards um, the upper end. Uh, in terms of muscle, I am a little bit skeptical when I see people using the omega-3 index as a reference for skeletal muscle health, because I just don't think the evidence is there yet for us to say to protect against or to improve uh, muscle with aging, you need this percentage. But I'd say that using it as a broad gauge for omega-3 status is quite helpful. And again, I, I haven't familiarized myself with the index for a while now, but I think around 8% is something that is, is typically a healthy level. Yeah, I, I would agree. We like to see people between 8 and 12 or so. Um, just for yeah. overall health, it's, it's a goal that we shoot for. Now, in terms of 
mechanism of action. Let's talk a little bit about the mechanism of action and what the potential benefits are of omega-3 fatty acids. Yeah, sure. So inter- are we talking muscle specific? You can talk general? whatever you would like. Okay, Your favorite so the, topic the is gen- what we want to hear about. <laughs> so I, I actually think we don't really know. Uh, and it, there's some really interesting papers out there now that I have, and they're review papers um, by people who've done a lot of work in cardiovascular physiology. And I just think we we are, we know that at least from a cardiovascular perspective, it, there is some positive evidence there, and some recent trials using the Skepa, which is a kind of pure form of of EPA, is showing some positive results in the cardiovascular world. But I still don't think we've nailed down the mechanism, um, at least in that perspective. When it comes to muscle. The first thing is that I'm now, you know, we do need more work. Uh, I I need to be I need to see a little more more high quality RCTs before I'm quite convinced it's beneficial for muscle. But we're going in that direction. Um, I actually think I've got a hunch that it is related to incorporation into the membranes and potentially influencing mitochondria, which are the obviously the powerhouse of the cell. Um, they create the energy, and I think there's something related to the incorporation into the membrane. And then also improving mitochondrial health and function, which I know is a very broad term, but um, that's the kind of overall mechanism that I think from a skeletal muscle perspective might be working. Um, But again, we just need a lot more work in the area before we can really start pinning those mechanisms down. That's fascinating. How does it relate to, so basically what I'm hearing you say is that this incorporation of taking an omega-3 fatty acid orally will help with the, would you say the fluidity? of the phospholipid membrane of cells potentially? Yeah, I'd say the order. I've um, I've used fluidity before and I've been reprimanded and I think it's <laughs> Good, because reprimand. Flu- yes. fluidity gives, it, it gives the impression that it's just not regulated or we just make things easier to, to get in and out. And I think if the analogy of that castle wall is, it's the whole point of a membrane speed is to protect and to regulate what comes in and out. And I think um, Dr. Phil Calder, who I spoke to, we were a review article on this, he, he referred to me and said, it's actually membrane order where it, the order of the membrane and how things are regulated across that membrane is altered. So that's really where I think that the beneficial effects of the omega-3s would occur. And to pick off that, it seems to me at least logical, and there is some evidence for this, that people who have a low omega-3 status would benefit more from omega-3 intake because the composition of their membrane is not as favorable as to those people who typically have a, a, um, an omega-3 index that was you know, around the six to eight percent. How long does it take for the membrane to incorporate omega three fatty acids? Well, that that's a function of the dose. So, if you give around five grams per day um, of omega threes, or around three to five grams per day, you can see a detectable change within about two weeks. Well, it's detectable because we use very precise instruments. It's really a very small increase, but it typically you require around four weeks, four to eight weeks to see about a doubling of the EPA and DHA content in the muscle. And we've shown before in women that are around, you know, five grams per day of, of collective omega-3s that it seems to kind of plateau bet- somewhere between six and eight weeks in the muscle. Um, and what we're doing now is we're doing a study where we're, we're trying to see how long it takes for it to come out of the muscle. So um, my uh, grad student, Sydney Smart, is doing a study where she's it's a funny name, second Sydney Small, but she's um, loading up for eight weeks and then ceasing intake and then seeing how long it takes for it to come back down to baseline in the muscle and measuring associated inflammatory markers to see whether they track the up and down nature of the lipid composition or the EPA and DHA composition in muscle. 
That's really exciting. I'm, I'm excited to hear what her results are. Is it dose dependent? So you went up to five grams. If you were to say go up to 10 grams, do you, I don't know if this has been done in humans or animal models, but if you go up above and beyond the five gram dose, do you think that there is diminishing returns? I, I would certainly say so, yes. There's going to be a point at which we just cannot assimilate the EPA and DHA into the membranes as quickly. And now there's not, I don't know any hard um, studies on this that has done dose response in skeletal muscle, at least of like, you know, real high doses of 10 versus 5 versus 2.5. But I'd say that there gets to a point where, you know, a lot of the lipids would just end up being oxidized. They wouldn't make it into the membrane. Um, and I think five grams is quite challenging for a lot of people to consume in, in pill format. I, you know, you could drop it down to around two grams per day of EPA DHA and still see the same changes in the membrane. Potentially, it just may take a little bit longer, um, maybe two to three months instead of in the, the one to two months that we'd see with a higher dose. Do you suspect that the needs are a daily need? Um, I'd say that if we're talking that if we're if we're cl- if we're gonna kind of um, pin our mechanism of action around changes in the membrane composition. Um, we, I would say that no, like you could, you could probably skip a day and then pick back up on the omega threes and it wouldn't be too much of an issue. I don't think the benefits of the omega threes are transient. And what I mean by transient, I don't mean that, you know, you take omega threes, you do exercise and just taking the omega threes within hours cause you to, you know, have these beneficial effects, so to speak. I think it takes, um, I think what happens is the omega threes will prime the cellular environment to better respond to cues um, or to protect against negative cues. So you really do need to increase the EPA DHA content of your muscle um, before you typically see the benefits. This leads beautifully into one of your uh, recent research papers that I found very relevant. And this was omega three fatty acid supplementation attenuates skeletal muscle disuse atrophy during two weeks of unilateral leg immobilization in healthy young women. And I am going to just give you a quick summary for the listener. And you, my friend, are going to dive deep into the literature. So the summary is this study investigated the impact of omega-3 fatty acid supplementation on muscle size, mass, muscle protein synthesis during a two-week period of muscle disuse and recovery in women. And it's somewhat of the catabolic crisis model that Doug Patton Jones had initially put together. Participants either consumed five grams a day of omega-3 fatty acids or an equivalent amount of sunflower oil as a control group, starting four weeks before the immobilization of a limb. The results showed that the decline in muscle volume was significantly lower in the omega-3 group compared to the control group. And muscle mass reduction was only observed in the control group. I And I, of course, there's two more statements here. So the muscle protein synthetic response was higher in the omega-3 group. And basically, uh, this uh, takeaway for me was that omega-3 supplementation could help mitigate muscle disuse atrophy in young women, which is fascinating because most of the studies when we think about disuse are older, potentially through the promotion of muscle protein synthesis versus the mitigation of muscle protein breakdown or a proteolysis. Yeah. 
So I think, yeah, that study was kind of a long time in the making. We'd, we'd um, read the papers from Bettina Mittendorfer's group that we talked about before um, with Gordon Smith and Sam Klein showing that. <laughs> She's Hi, listening. Gordon. I, again, um, I was uh, <laughs> telling Chris that I uh, trained. I was there in my uh, fellowship at my postdoc with Bettina and uh, Gordon Smith. So, hey, guys. Yeah, they did the classic the, the seminal papers in this field at the start showing that you feed omega-3s um, and then you infuse with amino acids and initially you see a potentiation of protein synthesis. So the omega-3s had somehow, you know, um, potentiated the, the feeding-induced response or the simulated feeding-induced response. And they followed that up, of course, with the um, the longitudinal study in older people where they fed all the people omega-3s and found that it increased muscle volume. So really what we were kind of interested in, um, and Dr. Phillips has done a lot of work with immobilization and tissues and trying to understand what are the what are the factors that kind of cause muscle loss with disuse in, in humans specifically, and it is different between humans and rodents, in our opinion. Um, so I come from Sterling with my PhD, really interested in omega three metabolism, and you know Dr. Phillips had been doing a lot of work in aging and disuse, and you know he supported me, um, and we wrote grants to get the money and to study whether we could use these omega-3s, which were anabolic in situations of just simply feeding and whether they could protect against tissue atrophy. And we chose um, young women for, for a variety of reasons. One, there's some evidence that um, women can metabolize EPA to DHA a little bit more efficiently. Um, secondly, young women um, tend to be more susceptible to um, ACL injuries when they're playing sport and therefore you know, going through a period of disuse. And the literature, at least with protein metabolism, is is kind of um, lacks a lot of data in females. So essentially what we wanted to do is to study whether the omega-3s could protect against muscle loss. And essentially that's what we found. We found that um, when we feed for a, a prolonged period or, or that running period for four weeks, put the young women in, um, in a leg brace for two weeks and then allowed them to recover for two weeks to going back to the activities of daily living, that those in the omega-3 group seem to lose less muscle than those in the control group. And that this was linked to higher rates of protein synthesis, which gave us a bit of confidence because um, we'd seen before the work from Bettina Mittendorfer's lab showing that it directly affects protein synthesis. But there are a couple of disclaimers on this. I would say is that, you know, this work typically costs a lot of money, so you can't do large sample sizes. Um, unless you you do get the the cash to do so, and we did see around a fourteen percent decline in muscle volume in the control group, which is a which is quite a lot. Um, so whilst you know this is a very rigorous rigorously controlled study, you know when you see a fourteen percent decline in the control group and around a five percent decline in the intervention group, we typically see around five percent declines. In, in this population with two weeks of tissues. So, you know, I'm, I'm confident that, you know, there was an effect of omega-3s, at least from the protein synthetic perspective, but we also have to bear in mind that it's certainly not, um, it's not a complete case at all. I think a lot more work needs to be done in this, and that's what we're trying to do right now. We, we, we've, we've gone to a larger bed rest study where we're looking at um, 40 women, 20 in a control, 20 in an intervention group during a period of bed rest to see whether we can recapitulate those findings. And what is the age of those young women or the women, the the group? Uh, 18 to 30. 18 to 30. Absolutely. So they still women. have a robust amount of hormones. So that, that potentially could play a role, yeah? Um, I'm not too sure that, though. I think I'm, I haven't seen convincing evidence that in humans anyway that these changes in circulating hormones 
actually have too much of a role in regulating muscle protein turnover um, in young people at all. I mean, as we get older, maybe it's slightly different, but I think um, primarily it's the intrinsic to the muscle. It's the factors intrinsic to the muscle that are causing muscle loss. And Luke Van Loon's group have done some excellent work with intrinsically labeled protein where it would suggest, at least to me, that there's intracellular mechanisms that are affecting greater protein synthesis that are causing the muscle loss themselves. When um, we talk about the intrinsic mechanism, are you talking about mTOR? Are you talking about um, additional mechanisms? And if so, what is the role of dietary protein? And does that act synergistically with the omega-3 supplementation? Yeah, it's a really good question. So when I say intrinsic to muscle is basically in humans, um, to maintenance of muscle size is muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein breakdown. So again, imagine a brick wall, you put bricks in, which is muscle protein synthesis, you take bricks out, which is muscle protein breakdown. In humans, um, when we go through a period of disuse, it's the inability to put bricks into that wall effectively and breakdown pretty much stays the same or slightly increases. And then that's when you see that reduction of muscle size. So really what we believe is happening is that there is a reduction in protein synthesis inside of the muscle. And there seems to be something about the molecular factors inside of the muscle that are altered that impair the ability of muscle to mount that protein synthetic response. And typically we hear mTOR quite a lot. And that is obviously the focus of a lot of research for a variety of reasons right across from aging and cancer and, and, and nutrition. Um, I think we really, again, don't know is the answer. We don't know exactly inside of the muscle what is causing that impaired or blunted protein synthetic response um, or the reduction in muscle protein synthesis. It could be reductions in the capacity or the amount of translational material that we have, or it could be an impaired ability to translate the protein from the mRNA. But when it comes to the amino acids, yes, I do believe that there's a synergy between the omega-3s and the um, essential amino acids, particularly leucine. If going back to the classic work that we talked about before in Bettina Mittendorfer's lab, what they found was that um, when you measure muscle protein synthesis in the fasted state so that you there is no feeding, omega-3s don't really seem to have an effect on, on resting protein synthesis rates. So this is before you've consumed protein or amino acids. But when they infused amino acids, that was when they saw the potentiation. So Again, that kind of goes back to my theory about the mechanism of action being it changes the biophysical properties of the muscle so that maybe it's better able to stimulate protein synthesis in response to amino acid feeding, if that kind of makes sense. it's It does. And it's so interesting. Basically, um, what I'm hearing is if you are going to ingest, and again, I'm taking this to the public, if you're going to ingest omega-3 fatty acids potentially for um, some kind of muscle sparing effect, it sounds like it's better to do in combination with some kind of dietary protein. Would Could that be fair? I would say so, yeah. I'd say that, you know, there's some evidence that it might actually potentiate the small doses. So if, if you've got, if you've insufficient your diet and protein, the omega-3s may rescue it a little bit. But I would say that um, combining omega-3 intake with a high quality protein diet, you know, rich in essential amino acids is probably the way forward. But again, a, another disclaimer here, as I think there is no more powerful uh, tool than exercise, particularly resistance exercise to combat muscle loss. So, you know, whenever I give a talk on this, I'm always like first slide, 
right? You can't out nutrition, physical inactivity. And Dr. Phillips says this a lot and so there's a few others is, you know, exercise is the, is the frontline strategy here. But then after that, modifications to diet are important. And then when we think of the context of hospital or sickness or surgery, then I think nutrition becomes a greater relative player in, in, the, in the toolbox that we have to try to combat muscle loss. I couldn't agree with you more. Exercise is a much bigger needle mover. But again, the majority of individuals, um, 50% of Americans don't exercise. And of those exercising, they might hit 24% of the baseline recommendation. Eating yeah. and food intake supplementation is the lowest hanging fruit because it's something that we all do. Nailing this and getting this right is essential. The other uh, side mention of what you're saying is that you do need physical activity, which makes me think in terms of gradation, you are looking at bed rest, which again, this is an extreme model for those of you, you guys, bed rest is exactly what it sounds like. And typically when someone is admitted into the hospital, oftentimes that is something that is put on their chart. Individuals should be on bed rest, probably the worst thing that you could do for someone's yeah. skeletal muscle health. What about individuals who are not ex per se exercising and not on bed rest? Is there a minimum amount of movement that you think becomes protective? Or uh, let's say they're taking a thousand steps a day, 2000. Do we have an idea of what the minimum effective dose of just maintenance to prevent atrophy? Uh, I don't think we have an exact prescription in terms of rep sets type of exercise, but just to maybe put it into context, um, low levels of physical activity, and that could be defined as, you know, walking to the shops, walking around, climbing stairs, really have a very protective effect against all, like all cause mortality. Like if you look at the data there, like doing something is certainly better than nothing. Um, when it comes to muscle, just to give you an idea, um, some work from Marley Dirks, um, who worked with uh, Luke Van Loon. Now she's got an independent position in, in Holland. She did work where they just superimposed twitch interpolation. So essentially they got a pad that delivered electrical stimulus onto somebody's leg that was immobilized. And I could be wrong here, so you'd have to check the papers out, but I think it was around 30 minutes a day of just superimposed twitch. And it was enough to prevent the loss of muscle size, but not muscle strength. Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of this show. Inside Tracker has made great strides this year in adding multiple new biomarkers. One that I would love to point out to you is ApoB, which is critical for heart health. We test this in all our patients, as well as three hormone markers that are especially important for addressing symptoms related to aging. Inside Tracker has also added insulin, and we've all heard about insulin. And insulin, fasting levels of insulin, is a key biomarker for muscle health. And again, these are all things that you should know of. Go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. And you will get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Why is blood work so important to do? Because it gives you data. And in order to make good decisions, you have to rely on data. Do not wait. Head on over to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion for 20% off their entire store. Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. This is a perfect place to highlight First Form's Full Mega. It is an ultra-concentrated EPA DHA premium omega-3 
formula. And just as Chris was talking, here is what is in two soft gels. EPA has 900 milligrams. So two soft gels contain 900 milligrams of EPA and 600 milligrams of DHA, which is exactly the dosage that Chris is talking about. We've heard all about why omega-3 fatty acids are very important and that having both EPA and DHA are critical for the phospholipid and potentially even mitochondrial health. Super easy to use. Get ahead of it. And here's how you do it. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. Pick full mega, drop it in your cart, and you get free USA shipping on your order over $75 or more. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. So I think, you know, it, it depends on the question. If you, to offset muscle, the loss of muscle size, you could probably get away with not that much. I mean, to give you an example in the bed rest studies, what we're worried about is people getting up and walking around. And you'll see in a lot of the bed rest trials, people have to go to the bathroom in the bed. They make sure that they don't move around a bit because it may protect against the loss of muscle size, but what it does not protect against is a loss of muscle strength. And muscle strength is arguably more important than muscle size when it comes to aging. We want to be able to, to move functionally and we require that strength. So essentially, I think anything is better than nothing. If I was to pick one, I'd say resistance exercise training or some form of resistance um, because then you're going to hit strength and size. But essentially the answer is I, I don't know if there's a, what is the minimal amount, but I'd say something is better than nothing for sure. So just basically if you think, oh, because I'm not going to go to the gym and do an hour session lifting weights, it doesn't mean that you couldn't just go outside and go for a walk or stay physically active. And the other thing about physical activity is that it, it, it maintains the sensitivity of the muscle to the nutrition. So simply by staying active, even though you in your head, you're not lifting, therefore I won't grow, but staying physically active retains muscle sensitivity to amino acids. So I think that's kind of another way to think about it as well and the importance of physical activity. I love that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? The Just the physical activity, I'm sure you're also referring to insulin sensitivity, just the activity. Yeah. So like the, you know, sometimes we'll, people, you know, become pre-diabetic a little bit through physical inactivity. And, and one of the reasons is, is that you, your muscle is basically a sink. It's a sink for glucose and it's a sink for amino acids. And when you stay physically active, there's essentially receptors on, on, on muscle um, that become a little bit more active um, when you are physically active. So, you know, mechanical kind of, I wouldn't say mechanical tension, but, you know, mechanical strain in the form of exercise, like walking around, that will activate those receptors on, on the muscle to bring in glucose and to bring in amino acids. Um, and I think staying physically active keeps your muscle very healthy. It keeps the quality of your muscle healthy. So another way to think of things is just because our muscles may not necessarily grow, it doesn't mean that the quality of the muscle is not being positively affected. So, you know, the more that you increase the synthetic rates um, of building that wall and the breakdown rates, you're constantly replacing that brick wall, right? So one way to think of it is if you've got damaged bricks, you want to knock them out and then you want to replace them. And that's what physical activity does. It, it increases the turnover of your tissue so that you're constantly replacing damaged or broken tissue. Um, and, and essentially that's what physical activity does. And that's why it's so important. And I noticed that you mentioned primarily resistance training. If you were going to choose one thing versus some kind of cardiovascular, why the resistance training over some kind of cardiovascular 
exercise? Well, I think the first thing I'd say both, right? If I had to pick, I would I agree. pick both. Mm-hmm. I think both are important. But if someone had gone to my head and said, you have to pick one, for me, it will be resistance training. And I think that will be because, you know, the first thing I'd say, the majority of the literature out there on exercise and the overwhelming evidence is built upon the foundation of endurance exercise and cardiovascular exercise, of which there are clear benefits. But there's comparatively less work when it comes to resistance exercise training, particularly as we get older, you know, and I think there's maybe some societal issues around older women typically performing resistance exercise as well. And that's some of the narratives around that, at least in their head, a little bit outside my area, but that's the experience I've had talking to some of the older women when they come in to do training. Um, but I what think do they resistance say? exercise. Do they say, I pers- can't lift weights. I'm going to get I just, bulky. Yeah, I don't want to go to get gym. hurt myself. What do they yeah. say? Well, hurting ourselves is one, but the other one is I've just never done it. I've never seen myself in a gym. And I think a lot of that is they don't see themselves in the gym. And if you walk into the average gym, you can see, particularly in the weight section, that the demographics that are typically there versus, you know, you don't walk into a weight section and typically see all the ladies performing squats or doing that type of work. It's just not something that they've ever seen themselves doing. And I think it's really important to try to change that message because they're probably, if you were to pick a demographic that you think will benefit the most from resistance training, it's the older adults, particularly the older women. Absolutely. Um, so I wrote a book called Forever Strong and that's exactly what it's about. Oh, yeah. It's really about changing the narrative surrounding resistance training, muscle health is not something that is just for the bros in the gym, but truly has this burden of longevity. And I appreciate you because what you're saying absolutely backs up that message. And again, as a geriatrician, that is what I hear is that women will say, well, I'm just not the kind of person that goes in and and knows how to lift weights and and feels comfortable. But it is the most important, in my opinion, most important exercise that has to be instated. And also what I'm hearing you say is that it doesn't have to be heavy weights. It probably could be, and again, Stu Phillips has done some wonderful work in this area, that it can be resistance ex- or um, bands, lighter weights. It doesn't have to be these heavy one rep max. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely, 100%. And I think it's a little bit of a, a myth that you need to lift this heavy weights. And I'll hold my hands up. When I first went to Stu's lab, I was like, no way. Like this, you need to, in my mind, I was like, well, what's going on? I saw Nick Bird's work, excellent work, mm-hmm. real good work with the point and synthesis. And I was like, nah, you need, you've got to be lifting heavy weights. And my mind's changed. It significantly has changed over time. Like, you know, when I first went, I had my PhD and I still was not convinced. And then, you know, when I was there and I was, I just started to think a little bit more kind of clearly about it. And I realized that now the, the evidence is there, the meta-analyses are there. There's enough evidence to show actually you don't need heavy weights to to, to grow muscle and you certainly don't need heavy weights to, to, to get stronger. Maybe if it's, you want to get that extra 2% out in your power lift or whatever, I get it. You want to practice that task at a heavy load. But if you're talking public health recommendations, and I think this is where there's a conflation between public health recommendations and what is optimal for an athlete. And I think in my mind, you know, going to the gym, you don't have to do heavy weights. You know, you don't have to do multiple set after set after set. If older folks want to go, they do. They can do low, low till failure or even close to failure. You don't necessarily even need to go to failure. You can get significant health benefits from performing resistance exercise and, and they, they, they occur quite quickly as well. They do. They do. Now, I have a question for you. I don't know if this has been studied, but does the omega-3 affect uh, different fiber types differently? Type 1 versus type 2 
uh, is there more of a significant change or dose that affects one or the other? Um, I don't know. Uh, I I don't think anyone's actually looked at that. I I, I don't believe they have. I mean, um, the way to do that would be to do the biopsy and take the single fibers and then look at the differences in corporation. I don't, and I think if it, I think we're splitting hairs at that point. If we do see the differences, it's more interesting from a from a biology point of view, but uh, from an overall health point of view, I'm not too sure it would make that much of a difference. Um, but the long and short there is, I I, I just don't know. Is there is there a potentially a genetic variability in these effects? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. There's there is some work from the University of Toronto by um, somebody called Adam Methrell, and he's done some really really cool work in this field looking at um, particular SMPs and genotypes. And there's some um, females that seem to be able to women females that seem to be able to to more effectively convert EPA to DHA. So when we talk about omega threes, you consume them in the diet, but essentially you can convert EPA to DHA. And there seems to be some evidence that certain women can convert, um, not all women, but certain women can convert EPA to DHA a little bit more effectively or efficiently. And that's early level research. Um, it's something that we we certainly need to build upon. And we're in Sydney study right now. We're doing um, um, the feeding study. It's all the 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 sorry the time course change, and we're going to try to tease that out a little bit. We're not statistically powered for, for the genotype work, but from an exploratory analysis, we're going to look at that. But I will say that not just from changes in the composition of the membrane, but the production of lipid species appears to be very variable to a single dose between people. Um, but a little bit more work needs to be done there with that. That is so. That is so amazing. So there may be a variability in these effects based on male or female. That seems that m- women potentially can convert and utilize it more effectively. Would you say? Uh, yeah, I, I will essentially. It just seems to have higher D- rest and DHA levels in the plasma. Whether it's the same in the muscle, I'm not too sure. I see. Um, and that's something that we're interested in doing because we do the muscle biopsy research here. So that's something that we'd look at. But it is, it's, it's you know, trying to understand like what is the, why does that happen? Like why, why do some people maybe um, metabolize these omega three fatty acids slightly different compared to other people? What are the reasons, and and can that be leveraged from a from understanding the biology of omega-3s and also leverage towards improving in health i think that information is yet to come but what i'll say is like you know is there's in terms of muscle and rightly so there's just an abundance of research on essential nutrient in the form of protein so the essential amino acids but i think the role of these essential fatty acids in muscle is is very much in its early stages and there is a lot of exciting work still to come requires money but uh, yeah, it's, it's it on its way. And it requires someone to do the biopsies. Did you have to do the biopsies, Chris? <laughs> um, here, yes, we do. In Canada, we do the biopsies, yep. So, so I mean, it's, you uh, personally, because I had to do them early in the morning. I had to do fat oh, and muscle well, biopsies early. So I'm just asking, are you the one that has to go in there? Oh, gosh, here we go. At, at, at the moment, yes, but I'm trying to find my way to wiggle out of it. If I'm honest, I need to get somebody else to do them because, uh, you know, it's not the early mornings, but it's just half your day's gone by the time that you finish doing them. It's 12 o'clock and you're like, right, I got to start my day now. So yep. um, today, this morning, I got the morning off from them. So I'm quite happy about that. <laughs> you know, and your armpits are sweating and you're like, okay, because you've got to make sure that they're appropriately numbed and, <laughs> you know, there's no infection. It's just, it's a whole thing. It is absolutely a whole thing. I, 
know, I tell the same jokes every biopsy to the participant and uh, it's a different participant, so they don't mind, but the PhD students, again, I'm pretty bored of the same jokes every time, so, so but they just have to deal with it. Do you think that there's a role in omega-3 fatty acids in weight loss? Um, it would be, you would, it's a kind of a nuanced question in terms of if somebody was, here's the way in which I think it could happen. If you were in a weight, at a situation of, to induce weight loss, you require a calorie deficit. Typically when you're in a calorie deficit, you of course will lose fat, but you will also lose a little bit of skeletal muscle. Now, if it is the case that the omega-3s are potentiating the protein synthetic response to feeding, it could be the case that when you're when you're in a, in a situation of weight loss and you consume those omega-3s, that they would better help retain lean tissue during that weight loss period. To my knowledge, that question has not been comprehensively answered yet. It's a really interesting one, but then we get into the details or sorry, into the... So it's, it's about the ability to detect a change, right? And in, in, in obviously in science and the RCTs. And I think the effects of omega-3s in muscle are typically very small. They can be very important and clinically meaningful, but they're very small. So I think to answer that question, we would need quite a large RCT um, to be able to detect the effect of omega-3s in that context if it did exist. You know, Nick Nick Bird, he was actually um, at the University of Illinois. I don't know if he is still there. Yeah. There was some evidence that he had put out that potentially individuals struggling with obesity have somewhat of a muscle protein, a blunted muscle protein synthetic response. Uh, have you also seen that yeah. data? Seen that data from him? Um, yeah, I've, I've not. I mean, I've not done any studies myself on that, but I've seen Nick's work on that, um, um, and they wrote a, a pretty good review on that in Frontiers as well. I mean, it is the literature is mixed. But um, it does seem to be the effect, uh, sorry, the finding that, uh, that obese people do have that blunted response. Yeah. And it just makes me wonder, is this room for, again, utilizing omega-3 fatty acids with high quality protein to potentiate and overcome um, any challenges within that tissue? Because skeletal muscle tissue also gets fat infiltrated within the tissue. The quality of the tissue can change. Um, yeah, so I was just curious if, if you had thought about that or if there was any research that you're aware of or potentially something that you're working on related to uh, obese tissue and omega-3 fatty acids. No, not off the top of my head. I mean, it would be an, in just an interesting question though to answer is, could we do that? I think sometimes though, is it the case of, I mean, it would be a mitigation strategy as opposed to a frontline strategy, you know, to try to kind of improve the quality of the bossa, but um, as a stopgap, so to speak, it would be maybe interesting to see whether you could increase the omega-3 content. I would assume though that those omega-3s are also going to get soaked up by some of the adipose tissue. So, you know, when you're given um, a, an absolute dose of those omega-3s, how long would it take? And an interesting question is, does it differ in terms of the incorporation into muscle between obese and um, non-obese? But typically obese folks tend to have more muscle anyway. It's just the quality of the muscle is not great. Right. Do you think, you know, we talk about gram size, but is there a um, a body weight component, a dose associated based on body weight? Because essentially someone, you know, I'm 5'1", 110 pounds. I am going to have a lot less phospholipid membranes potentially than someone who is six foot, 250 pounds. Yeah. And that's, again, a great question because some of the, the variability that we see could just simply be because we are given the same flat dose to people of different body masses, right? So the relative changes are going to be different. I think from a scientific perspective, it would be interesting to see whether we, we do prescribe things based on a, a gram per kilogram 
basis, like you know, sometimes people would do with protein. But I also think from um, an application point of view um, to the general population, it, it becomes a little bit difficult. You know, you wake up in the morning and then it's like, okay, how much do I weigh? Like, and you know, you get each gram pill. You're not going to cut a fish oil pill in half. It tastes horrible. So I think that it's a case of you know, it, I think the absolute doses are probably the best way to go for now, um, so that we can actually understand what's going on and to see on a on a on a kind of population basis and a, cl- a clinically meaningful level what whether these changes are occurring and then we can refine the doses to kind of maybe make it a little bit more prescriptive on a person by person basis but right now in my mind is i think we just need to start with the 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 big questions with the absolute dose and then if we need to not least from a practical perspective of giving people an oil on a gram by gram basis and hmm. um, just stick with the absolute dose at the moment that's a a really good perspective. Do you think that there is any role in the timing of omega three fatty acids in relation to exercise and recovery? Um, okay, so if, again, I just go back to my initial hypothesis with this: is that it's required to be incorporated into the membrane for it to see its effect, um, and that's one of the limitations that people will argue against omega threes. If you're going into surgery and it's an emergency surgery or it's a last minute issue or you become sick last minute then you're not exactly going to reap the benefits because it's going to take two weeks for it to get into the membrane, sometimes four. So the way that I, and we're doing a study right now with ACL surgery patients where we are loading them up with high-dose omega-3s and high-dose essential amino acids to see whether that kind of prophylaxis approach can can work. Um, but I would say that in terms of timing, I don't believe that you know you could, you could take omega-3s on a Monday and see the benefits on a Tuesday. That's just my particular... But it would be nice. So basically, if you guys are okay, listening, nice. omega three fatty acids, so it'd be something that you would also potentially pre-take, not if, but when there's some kind of catabolic crisis or some kind of need. You know, you mentioned essential uh, amino acids. What is the dose comparison, and do you control for the dietary protein in the diet? Because I've seen some of your other studies, you double the RDA at one point six grams per kilogram. Do you, or was it? I think it was actually one gram. Um. Yeah, how how do you dose protein and then with the addition of these essential amino acids? Yeah, so we typically put the and this is something that we get a review a lot with the grants because you know, it's are you giving the essential amino acids on top of the diet or are you replacing what's already in the diet so that essentially the diet is of better quality so to speak. Um in our studies we add it on top um, and that's because we want that big excursion of essential amino acids into plasma and potentially into muscle. Um, and so that's when the, the design of the studies right now that we've got, just to give you an example for the surgery study is they will consume a high dose essential amino acid product. It's around 20 grams of essential. It's a very high essential amino acid mm. with the omega-3s, but the omega-3s are every morning. And then the essentials are like twice a day to hopefully take advantage of that, that priming effect. Um, so our doses are typically higher. We choose we choose um, a pure essential amino acid mixture because, you know, when people go to hospital, we want to be kind of careful of, of the calories if they are consuming enough calories. Some some places they don't, but at least in our setting they do, and we don't want to we don't want people to become overfed as opposed to. Does that make sense? Like you don't want to induce negative effects in the muscle because you're overfeeding them. Right. So we try to balance it as much as we can. And I, I really like that you pointed out this idea of overfeeding skeletal muscle because, again, skeletal muscle as this site for glucose disposal, if you do not create flux and exercise within this this tissue, you do have to 
um, utilize muscle glycogen. There's if anyone were to Google intramyocellular lipids or ceramides, there's just all kinds of things that happen when skeletal muscle is overfed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and and that's like, you know in terms of calorie control, that 100. You don't you know when you start to get a surplus of calories for a prolonged period of time. Um, you can start to see, like you said, in, in infiltration of fatty acids, negative, uh, not good fatty acids into muscle, the development of insulin resistance. And this is where exercise is a potent tool. And there is some evidence, I think, Bettina Mittendorf has shown somewhere, you know, you feed high doses of protein for too long. You, it, it is linked at least, whether it's causative, it's reverse causality, we don't know. There is a link between, you know, these high dose protein diets and potentially insulin resistance, but that is completely abolished when you perform exercise. So in my mind, one thing, um, and actually I was talking to Nick Bird maybe two years ago or whatever about like when we teach nutrition in a university and, you know, sometimes people would teach nutrition in the absence of exercise. But the reality is that physical activity modulates the fate of those ingested nutrients. So, you know, if you, if, if, if it's to understand nutrition, I think you would, you need to understand how it's partitioned or the dietary intake of those nutrients can be partitioned depending upon the physical activity status. So, you know, if you're lying in a bed and you're not moving and glycogen stores are full, well, you know that those excess calories are probably going to get turned into lipids. But if you are exercising, you know, the calories are likely going to either be stored as glycogen or turned to um, glucose or, or oxidized. Yeah. And, and I want to follow up and mention something about, um, the data with uh, higher protein diets, again, we would have to define that. One of the things that I, I think should be pointed out is that you'll see an increase in all of these metabolites in the blood, whether it's glucose, whether it's fatty acids, whether it's these amino acids, not because, you know, at least from the data that I've looked at, not because it's a direct cause of these amino acids, but again, it's an overconsumption. Uh, you can't just add protein to an already calorie-rich diet and you're going to get a positive effect. That's, that is not going to happen. You will see yeah. an increase in these substrates within the blood. And, and I do think that that's an important point to mention um, and, and to point out. Do you think that there is, beyond the amino acids, so we're, we're really talking about something that is in its elemental form, the amino acids and then these omega-3 fatty acids, do you think that there are bioactive compounds that when these things are ingested, or at least from an omega-3 fatty acid standpoint, whether it's vitamin D, K2, do you think that there is some synergistic effect or other bioactive compounds that may influence this decrease in um, or blunting of this, I shouldn't say blunting, augmenting of the muscle protein synthesis? And mitigating of proteolysis, which again is this highly regulated, uh, complex system that degrades muscle proteins. Yeah, I think it's a, so. This is definitely not my specific area of expertise. So I am just pretty much going off. Um, I probably know different to the, the the lay public here, but essentially, is Nick's done some really buds, done some really good work with eggs, where you give you know intact I like egg with it with yolk and then you separate them off and you pretty much get a, a more positive effect when you consume an intact egg that contains its yolk and um kevin tipton uh, my older uh, um phd mentor he did work in texas where it was like full fat milk versus i think skim milk or the isolated part of it and weirdly the full fat milk had a greater effect on, on positive protein balance so in my mind it you know i think this is what was mentioned in nick's papers is that it is you know the the greater than the sum of its parts in terms of that there are some things in intact food sources that 
would work together synergistically to enhance protein synthetic responses and simply isolating what are the so-called known active ingredients. So this is where I'd always suggest a food first approach when people say, should I take omega-3 supplements? I'd be like, well, can you not get it from oily fish? So that might, that's what I would always suggest. Um, and yeah, I think there are some bioactive compounds that would actually work together to enhance protein synthesis and modulate protein turnover, whether it be proteolysis as well. But exactly what they are, I don't know. I think there's a little bit more work to be done there. There's you know, some evidence that vitamin D might work. Um, but again, I'm not too familiar with that literature. But I, I do think it's a food-first approach whenever we can um, to try to take advantage of what, it, what seems to be an emerging theme in the literature that when you combine intact food sources, there seems to be a better, um, let's just say, um, health benefit than consuming the isolated parts. It's exciting. It's exciting because ultimately you're utilizing these individual components, creating uh, evidence information behind it, and then going back to the individuals, right? We are and saying, okay, well, choose these whole foods that have these components in it to really optimize and protect it. It is ultimately using food as medicine and movement as medicine for optimization, which is incredible. Where is your research going? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So, um, yeah, right now we've got um, a surgery study. So we have patients going through um, ACL reconstruction and we've manipulated, we've created um, an essential amino acid um, drink, basically a bespoke drink that we is based off the literature that we think will have the most anabolic influence. And we're combining that with omega-3 fatty acids. Um, we've also got a bed rest study that's going to start early next year. That's looking at the effect of a combination of essential amino acids and omega-3 fatty acids in, in that response. But, you know, I think, you know, the lab actually, omega-3s is what we're interested in, but primarily what we look at is the mechanisms that regulate protein turnover and response to disuse and exercise. So we have some other studies going on that look at using the biopsies at the proteomic response to exercise and, and muscle mobilization. So which particular proteins in the muscle are being synthesized and which particular proteins are being degraded so we've got a, a new postdoc john mccloyd who's come from Stu's lab who's leading that with my um master's student christine and emily ferguson's leading the bed rest study emily's already wrote actually um a really good um review article on what she thinks is happening inside the muscle when it comes to omega-3s and um yeah seems like we've got a lot going on and it sounds like i'm name dropping but i think the students need recognition for what we're doing i agree with you da i think it's wonderful yeah danny and i must lead some of those papers yeah. as long as they're okay. uh, open yeah. access but we'll link them either way I, I agree with you they do a lot of okay. work um yeah, that, uh, sorry no 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 go ahead no, I was just saying, yeah, it's a lot of work. That's the thing is with these types of trials is like they're, they're two, two, three year trials sometimes before when you start to, when, you know, you, the, the papers come out and like, for example, right now, um, uh, Danny Nyman's leading the surgery mobilization study that's been in the works now for about a year and just designing the protocol, working with the surgeons, getting the, the, the nutrition designed. And then, you know, people will read a four page PDF, but it's, it's probably like a few hundred thousand dollars thousands of hours of work that go into it you know and it's it's kind of interesting when the paper gets published it's more of a relief than anything else to be honest that like you've managed to get it through because chris let's let's be truthful i mean i worked on some papers during my postdoc we worked on a project at two major projects that didn't get published yeah um and, and people oh, really? don't recognize the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of dollars and full teams working on 
these studies, I mean, we were doing uh, euglycemic clamps and muscle biopsies and cognitive testing and uh, just an enormous amount of work, but it doesn't all get, it doesn't all get published. No, and people say, you know, when they do get published, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And I'm like, well, you know, you write me a check for a million dollars and I'll do whatever you want. You know, like we, we, we want to do these things, but they just cost money, you know, and they cost time. So, um, but I'm sure um, it's all going to be helpful moving forward to kind of pinpoint things and to see what's going on with these omega-3 fatty acids, because it is very much a, a new and interesting area of research on top of, you know, understanding the biology of muscle loss and muscle growth. Well, uh, Chris McGlory, I'm so grateful for your time. Let's let's close it out with your ultimate recommendation, the science, the uh, scientific recommendation, and then potentially your recommendation, and maybe they're one in the same, of uh, whether it's a diet or supplementation. Putting you on the spot, buddy. Okay, I'd say stay physically active and do a mixture of resistance exercise and endurance exercise. Um, and that will be my primary recommendation. Then after that, if you can get yourself around 500 mix twice per week of EPA plus DHA, you're good to go. But primarily exercise. I love it. And how much dietary protein are you recommended these days? Oh, I don't think you need much more than around 1.2 grams per kilogram, if I'm honest. Okay. All right. If you're training heavy, 1.6, but anything, that, I mean, it depends if you're an older person. You're, anyway, I, I, I'm going off into it depends. My answer <laughs> is it depends, but I'd say the general public, anything above 1.2 is pretty much not diminishing returns at that point in my mind. Unless you're doing heavy training, then maybe 1.6. Okay. So we're, I'm going to hold you to a 1.6. I think that higher uh, from a clinical perspective may be better because again, they're going to either get carbohydrates or fats. And there's so many benefits to these uh, amino acids and the foods that ride along with it, whether it's creatine and serine, all the other things, iron, um, but a whole foods diet. I love it. And you're also not saying that you have to take omega-3 uh, supplementation, that if you're getting really two servings a week, you would feel good about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And absolutely. I don't think, you know, I'm not here trying to peddle. You need to supplement with omega-3s at all. I think if we're just trying to find new and st- um, kind of situations in which it may benefit, but I think for the general population, a food first approach with oily fish, that'll uh, that'll do the job. Well, I love it, uh, Chris McGlory. I'm so grateful for you, and I know that the listeners are going to absolutely love this. And in this episode, we covered everything related to omega three fatty acids and skeletal muscle health. And um, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Uh, are you looking for new uh, graduates? <laughs> Um, yeah, well, we're always looking for good graduate students and, and good postdocs. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I think that's the closest you're going to get me to um, social media unless I, I reserve Facebook for me ranting when um, rugby scores don't go my way. Um, but other than that, LinkedIn professionally and also you can um, contact me via email as well. Well, thank you, Chris, again. Yeah, no worries. And thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed the chat. Always good to kind of talk over these things with other people who share the interest. Yes. All right, guys, till next time, I hope you love this episode of the show. As always, please take a moment, rate, review, share it. And this content is free. The goal is that we get the best of the best out there to interface with you all. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. 
The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.